Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know, exhibitions on view right now, Audubon's Aviary, The Final Flight, Lincoln and the Jews, and Freedom Journey 1965, photographs of the Selma to Montgomery March by Stephen Summerstein, all really interesting, wonderful exhibitions. If you haven't seen them yet, please come back. And I always ask everyone, um, how many members do we have in the audience today? So um, look at this wonderful crowd. Thank you so much, members, for coming. And those of you who are not yet members, we, we encourage you to join the family. Um, pick up a brochure on your way out of all our programs and exhibitions and a staff member will help you. You get free admission to the museum and great discounts on the programs and um, help support all the programs like these. Tonight's program, The Return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support which, is an, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to recognize and thank trustees with us tonight, Scott Delman, Morris Offit, Ira Unsheld, Unsheld, and Carl Mangus, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. So the program tonight will last an hour and include an audience uh, question and answer session. The audience members are invited to approach two standing mics in the aisles where we'll have, that's, that's all I wanted to say, yes. <laughs> we ask that you do this so that everyone in the auditorium and those who listen to our <clears throat> recorded podcast can hear you. And following the program, please join us for a book signing with the author, um, tonight's speaker, whose book will be available in the museum store. So we are so pleased to welcome Ed Larson to the New York Historical Society. He's a professor of history and the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law at Pepperdine University. He also served in inaugural as an inaugural library fellow at the Fred W. Smith National Library for the study of George Washington in Mount Vernon, Virginia, and has lectured on all seven continents. That's, that's very impressive. <laughs> Previously, he taught at Stanford Law School, University of Melbourne, Leiden University, and the University of Georgia, where he chaired the history department. Professor Larson is also an acclaimed author and received a Pulitzer Prize for Summer of the Gods, the Scopes Trial, and America's Continuing Debate over Science and Religion. And we were just talking in the green room about bringing him back to do the Scopes Trial film and then come on a Saturday morning to do a more involved discussion, so keep your eyes peeled for that. If you're not on our list, sign up, and you will get announcements for that. His most recent book, The Return of George Washington, 1783 to 1789, was a New York Times bestseller 
and was also named a finalist for the California Book Award. So with that said, we just always ask everyone, if you have an electronic device or a cell phone, please turn it off. No flash photography, please. And now let's welcome our guest speaker. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for having me here. This is such an, uh, an amazing place to come. And of course, you brought me here. I have never seen Central Park more beautiful than it is today. All the flowers are out. Oh, oh, the New York Conservat the Central Park Conservatory, I think that's what it's called, deserves all the credit in the world. I, I, I just can't believe how many tulips they planted last fall to have it look like it does today. It's just, just beautiful, just beautiful. Um, the book's too long to talk about the whole book, so I've sliced off a part for tonight, and I'm calling it Washington's Second Revolution. Now, and I think you'll see why. Now, popular revolutions take many forms, some violent, others peaceful. They are marked by a fundamental transfer of power, typically from below, and is conventional to categorize the American Revolution of 1776 to 1783 as the first modern popular revolution, and the France's starting in 1789 as the second. Russia began a particularly cataclysmic revolt in 1917, and China finished one in 1949. In recent years, we see revolutions going on almost continuously, from those in Eastern Europe dating uh, during the late 1980s to the Arab Spring of early 2010s with its still unfinished upheavals in Tunisia, Libya, and Syria. We are reminded, and this is my point in naming all this, we are reminded of results in Russia, Libya, and elsewhere that despite our own pleasant experience and happy hindsight, popular revolutions don't always end well. Some, as in Russia, lead to tyrannies as bad as those that preceded them. Others descend into prolonged domestic chaos, as happened in France, as in this picture, and is now happening in Libya. Without George Washington, I'm going to contend, either result might have happened here. We're not special. We were partly special because of who our founder fathers were, found it, founders were. Now, the former, the former of these two events, the, the tyranny, might have happened if he had not retired following our first violent revolution. The latter, if he had not reemerged in 1787 for what some historians depict as our peaceful second revolution. So that's what I want to talk about today. Let me explain. Now, Washington stepped down. This is a famous picture of it from the U.S. Capitol Rotunda. Washington stepped down after the American Revolution and left the country's political future to others. Extolled by later historians as the signal event that set the country's political course. This act was similarly praised at the time. Citing examples from Julius Caesar to Oliver Cromwell, British propagandists during the Revolutionary War had scoffed at Americans for rebelling against one King George only to gain another in George Washington. Successful rebel leaders inevitably become tyrants they charged. 
Indeed, when expatriate American painter Benjamin West, then living in London, predicted during the war that Washington would retire upon the cessation of hostilities, a skeptical King George III reportedly replied, well, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And when he did so, American ambassador in Paris, Thomas Jefferson, commented, and I quote, the moderation in virtue of a single character probably prevented this revolution from being closed as most others have been by a subversion of that liberty it was intended to establish. Well, this story is well known. So let me focus tonight on the, the second half of this balancing act, Washington's role in forming a more perfect union through a second revolutionary intervention. Now, Looking back, when he retired after the war, Washington hoped for an energetic republic to unite the coastal states and the vast territories formerly ceded by Britain under the treaty recognizing American independence. And this is a map from that time period uh, showing the um, United States running, so-called United States, running all the way to the Mississippi River, all this interior territory, as well as the coastal states. He hoped, as I said, for an energetic republic uniting this whole area. And he said as much in his pre-retirement circular letter to the states, which he sent to all the states in the Union in 1783. He had issued it in response to the Confederation's ongoing inability to pay its troops and its creditors. America needed a stronger central government than the Articles of Confederation supplied. That was the point of Washington's letters. The letter became widely known and widely quoted. After the war, Britain did not leave its bases in the ceded Western territories and continued to arm the native peoples there. A post-retirement trip to his frontier properties in the Ohio Valley during 1784 showed Washington the tenuous nature of America's hold on the West. He came back writing to most of the governors of the, of the state saying that the frontiersmen, the people out here, the people he went met when he was out there, to use his phrase, were, on, were as on a pivot and they were ready to turn to where they could trade either with British Canada up the St. Lawrence or with Spanish through Spanish New Orleans. They couldn't be protected. The Native Americans were moving back in. The British were arming those Native Americans and continued to trade with them. All, and at the time, Washington was not alone. Most Americans, Benjamin Franklin would be a classic example of it, believed that the frontier was what made America special. They believed that the frontier made America different than England, something new under the sun, because Eastern investors could invest in the Western lands, and the common people could move out there and start a new life for themselves. And the the frontier thesis was very well and alive in 1770s and 1780s. And now they feared that this whole territory might be lost. Indeed, that reinforced his conviction that had been expressed in his circular letter to the states. 
that the Articles of Confederation, which were then looping the 13 sovereign states into a loose alliance that lacked the power to tax or command individuals and thus could not maintain an army or a navy, must be revised to give the central government direct control over interstate and international commerce, over foreign affairs, over national defense, and taxing and spending for the general welfare. To him, these particular national powers were essential to promote liberty, to protect private property, and to preserve independence. The subsequent breakdown of public order in some states, reckless emission of paper money by others, which eviscerated property rights in states like Rhode Island and Georgia, the domestic barriers to free trade among the states and a consequent worsening of economic conditions everywhere deepened his fears and those of, of like-minded Americans. The country was drifting toward the chaos characteristic of popular revolutions where effective new regimes failed to emerge to replace repressive old ones. Now, to illustrate this, I could draw on Washington's letters with any number of people. He literally wrote hundreds of letters a year during this person, uh, during this period of time, after he stepped down as general, before the Constitutional Convention. And he wrote them with the leading other nationalist-minded citizens of America. And I go over many of them in the book. But because I'm in New York, let me pick on those with the Confederation's brilliant but beleaguered Foreign Secretary John Jay, one of the truly great New Yorkers. Early in 1786, Jay urged Washington to emerge from retirement long enough to lead in the effort for constitutional reform. Jay warned in this letter, experience has pointed out errors in our national government which threatened to blast the fruit we expected from our tree of liberty. Private property and individual rights were under, under duress, under challenge in some of the states, and could become that way in other states. Now, Washington wrote back to Jay, I coincide perfectly with your sentiments, but, but my fear, and this is how Washington looked at the time, this was a picture at that time, but my fear is that the people are not yet sufficiently misled to retract from error. Washington blamed the situation on ignorance among the people regarding the dangers to freedom and to property from the excesses of unchecked democracy in some states, like Rhode Island, and wickedness among local leaders who sought to take advantage of this, these excesses for their own personal gain. He wrote, ignorance and design are difficult, difficult to combat. That it is necessary to revise and amend the Articles of Confederation, I entertain no doubt. But what may be the consequences of such an attempt is doubtful. Virtue, I fear, has, in a great degree, taken its departure from our land. Well, the anxiety over constitutional reform reflected in this exchange between Jay and Washington, and there were many letters in this exchange, betray far more fundamental concerns than mere fears of losing the West, simple hopes for a national market economy, and plain desires to repay government creditors, though those issues certainly weighed heavily on both men. Their letters spoke in terms of calamity and commotion, loss of public virtue, and a breakdown of the social fabric under the excesses of majority faction. 
much like the problems we see when popular revolutions fail to spawn balanced representative governments. Liberty itself was at risk, Washington wrote, much as it had been in 1776. But this time the threat came from within. Nothing short of a revolution in government was needed to save the United States. Well, by the end of 1786, with a debtor's insurrection in Massachusetts, wholesale printing of devalued paper money by Rhode Island, and open rebellion in Vermont, Washington began to doubt if Americans were even capable of self-government. Notwithstanding the boasted virtue of America, he wrote to Bostonian Henry Knox, the Confederation Secretary of War, we are far gone in everything bad and ignoble. Who but a Tory would have predicted this? And so to fellow Virginian James Madison, Washington wrote, in November of that year, 13 sovereignties pulling against each other and all tugging at the federal head will soon bring ruin to the whole, whereas a liberty and liberal and energetic constitution, well guarded and closely watched to prevent encroachments, might restore us to that degree of respectability and consequence to which we once had a fair claim. In short, a second revolution was needed to complete the first. In March of 1787, three months after the disturbances in Massachusetts died down, Washington wrote to Lafayette about their ongoing impact on the campaign for constitutional reform. Washington wrote, these disorders are evident marks of a defective government. Indeed, the thinking part of the people of this country are now so well satisfied of this fact that most of the legislatures have appointed delegates to meet in Philadelphia in general convention to revise and correct the defects in the federal system. By this point, Virginia had picked Washington to lead its delegation, and he was debating whether to go. His main worries were that the convention had been called merely to propose amendments to the um, Articles of Confederation not to frame a fundamentally new government, and that those amendments would require fifth... Higher up. Oops, you know what to do. I don't. And those amendments would require all 13 states to approve, and that would never happen. Rhode Island, for example, would never come um, from them, or New York. One of those two, they knew, would hold out. He believed that the convention needed to frame a fundamentally new government. He wrote to Lafayette, a thorough reform of the present system is indispensable, and with hand and heart, I hope the business would be assayed at the full convention. Fearing that some states might impose limits on their delegates so they couldn't do more than amend the articles, Washington reiterated his hopes that the Washington, that the convention, and again I'm quoting, that the convention would probe the defects of the confederation to the bottom and provide Radical cures. Now, Washington was not a radical man, but those are his words. Radical cures. Only on these terms would he go. By this point, Washington had written again to Jay, to Knox, and to Madison, the three people in the country he trusted most on such matters, requesting their advice on what that new constitution should look like. They all sent him letters back, of course, long letters. 
And he was struck by the similarities of those letters coming from three different people. And he, in his own hand, prepared an abstract of those three letters into a single whole, a single whole that looks surprisingly like the Constitution. All envisioned a true national government with separate legislative, judicial, and executive branches, ultimately responsible to the people. Unlike the existing Confederation government, which consisted of a single house legislature whose members were chosen and answerable to their respective state legislatures, not to any people. That is, the state legislatures could choose the delegates to the Confederation of Congress. They could instruct them how to vote. They could withdraw them at will, and they paid them. So they did what the state legislatures requested. As Madison wrote in his letter, the national government should be armed with positive and complete authority in all cases which require uniformity. This became the key feature of America's second revolution, one nation out of many states. In his responses to Knox, to Jay, and to Madison, Washington embraced their proposals and made them his own. He wrote to Jay, those enumerated in your letter are so obvious and sensibly felt that no logic can controvert. But is the public mind matured for such an important change? Expressing similar sentiments to Knox, well, that's Madison, there's Knox, Washington stated his fear that, quote, the political machine will yet be much tumbled and tossed and possibly wrecked altogether before such a system as you have defined will be adopted. Jealous of power, he wrote, state officials would give their weight of opposition to such a revolution. Nevertheless, he wrote to John Jay that he wished to, quote, try the convention route and to find out what can be affected. It might be the last peaceable mode of saving the Union. Those are his words. Make no mistake about it, Washington did not want to go to Philadelphia, but now he saw it as his civic duty and he always did his civic duty. Americans everywhere understood this and discussed its significance. For example, the Connecticut Journal reported, when it reported in May 2nd that Washington would go, the newspaper wrote, it is with particular satisfaction that we inform the public that our illustrious fellow citizen George Washington, in all capital letters, has consented to serve in the ensuing federal convention. What happy consequences may not all the true friends to federal government promise themselves? Here's Washington on his way. This and other popular accounts show that even before it began, Washington's expected revolution, Americans expected revolutionary change from the convention. Now, reflecting on his commitment to serve, Washington was actually one of the few delegates to actually arrive in Philadelphia on time. He duly went to the State House, we now know it as Independence Hall, at the appointed hour on May 14 to find only Madison and the local Philadelphia delegates from Pennsylvania present. Nobody else was there. This group returned daily as other delegates trickled in, but it took 10 days to obtain a quorum. In the meantime, meeting privately, the Virginians present and apparently the Pennsylvanians cobbled together the outlines for a new plan of government. It became known as the Virginia Plan because Virginia Governor Edmund Randolph formally offered it at the convention. But Randolph didn't write it, certainly not alone. Little is known about the meetings um, that 
were involved in drafting this document, but letters from those presidents assert that Washington attended every single meeting, and clearly he supported the outcome. As one Virginia delegate depicted the still-forming plan, nothing less than a revolution in government was brewing. He wrote, the most prevalent idea seems to be a total alternation of the present federal system and substituting a great national council with full powers upon all objects of the union. This sentence effectively summarizes the Virginia plan. People would replace states as the building block of a national republic. On matters of national interest, Congress would either dictate to the states or deal directly with the people. When the convention did obtain a quorum, it promptly chose George Washington as its president and turned to matters of rules. And this is the only drawing of Washington made while he was serving as president of the Constitutional Convention. It's appeal, of course, um, and it lists his position on the, on the ring there. These sold for a dollar apiece in Philadelphia, and he couldn't print enough to keep them going. Now, those rules um, that were adopted provided that so long as it was represented, each state would have one vote. A majority of states then represented would carry a vote and secrecy would obtain throughout. With windows shuttered and doors closed, the members met day after day, six days a week for over three months. Delegates didn't stay there all the time. Delegates came and went. And because states required a majority of del their delegates there to be represented, states gained and lost representation during the summer. New Hampshire, for example, did not appear until late July, by which time New York had left altogether and never came back. They didn't vote in the end. It didn't vote in the end. You didn't vote in the end. Rhode Island never participated. Only Washington and Madison attended every session. With secrecy enforced, the only record of the proceedings came in Madison's private notes of the debate, an official tally of motions and votes, and a scattering of personal writings. This limits what we know about Washington's role because as presiding officer, he didn't speak on substantive matters in the hall where Madison recorded the debates. The speaker in a, under parliamentary rules doesn't speak, much like the 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 Speaker of the House of Representatives never speaks in the House. But does that mean we do not think that Speaker Boehner has quite a say in what comes out of the House of Representatives? It was much the same in Philadelphia. Um, uh, Washington did speak, talk privately with the other members, and he remained a voting member of the Virginia delegation. He also supervised the deliberations and called upon members when they spoke. In this, he acted like the current House Speaker. In the end, to show his significance, for example, Washington cast the deciding vote in the Virginia delegation that had Virginia vote in favor of the Constitution. By that time, George Wyeth had gone home because his wife was dying, and that left a five-vote delegation, and four, two of them voted no. If Washington hadn't voted for the Constitution in Philadelphia, it wouldn't have been unanimous among those states still represented. Of course, if New York had stayed, it wouldn't have been unanimous either, but <laughs> two of them left, leaving only Hamilton, and he couldn't vote. Can you imagine Hamilton not being able to vote, the frustration that that caused on him? But 
that brings us to the end in Washington's decisive final vote. Let's go back to the beginning and sort of recreate in a short manner Washington's role at the Constitutional Convention. I do much more about this in the book. One day after the delegates uh, committed themselves to secrecy, the Virginia delegation dropped its bombshell. Having participated in preparing it, Washington clearly conspired in the timing of the delivery. To begin the main business of the convention, as Madison termed it in his notes, Washington called on Randolph. Um, The Virginia governor then presented his plan, his delegation's plan, the so-called Virginia plan, for a new constitution. As presented by Randolph, the plan contained an outline for a, quote, national government, that's the term in the plan, composed of a two-house legislature, some sort of a chief executive, and a judiciary with supreme and inferior courts. Citing the discord among the states, the rebellion in Massachusetts, the havoc of paper money, as he called it, and its failure to pay its debts, what Randolph argued that the old confederation did not work and, as he put it, raised the prospect of anarchy from the laxity of government everywhere. The hope, he said, lay in a national government with powers to legislate on matters of general concern and to compel obedience. One delegate captured this speech's essence in a scribble, quote, sovereignty is the integral thing. We ought to be one nation. Well, Virginia had staked its ground, forcing others to respond. No delegate could doubt where Washington stood. He remained a voting member of Virginia's delegation, called on Randolph to speak first, and never suffered any interruption with what one critic called, quote, the governor's long and tedious speech. Clearly, Washington sided with the Virginia plan. In doing so, he helped to hijack the convention. Congress had endorsed the gathering as a meeting to draft amendments to the Confederation. Washington's Virginia instead proposed using it to scrap the existing government and form a new one. That very night, the very night that Randolph gave his speech, Washington likely worked on a long letter that he mailed the next day to Jefferson in Paris. He wrote in that letter, the business of this convention is as yet too much in embryo to form any opinion of the results. That something is necessary, all will agree. For the situation of the general government, if it can be called a government, is shaken to its foundations and liable to be overset at the next blast. In a word, it is at an end. And unless a remedy is soon applied, anarchy and confusion will inevitably ensue. His letter sounds remarkably like Randolph's speech. Who was echoing who? Was Randolph echoing speaking for channeling Washington, or was Washington echoing Randolph? We'll never know, but they were certainly saying the same things. Well, after heatedly debating and narrowly defeating a motion to limit the proceedings to amending the Articles of Confederation, the convention accepted the Virginia plan as a starting point for deliberations and never looked back. Washington sat silence in the hall, but surely spoke in private. Persuaded I am that the primary cause of all our disorders lies in the different states, he wrote in a private letter on the day that they voted to proceed with the Virginia plan rather than go with the New Jersey plan, which would just have amended the articles. He went on to say, 
Primary cause of all our disorders lies in the different states and in the tenacity of that power which pervades the whole of their systems. As long as the states retain their independent sovereignty, this country will falter. Those were Washington words on that day. Well, the initial battle won. The war then raged over the precise structure and powers of Congress, the nature of the executive, protections for state-sanctioned slavery, and myriad other matters. Washington remained quiet in the hall, but wrote privately, the people who oppose a strong and energetic central government are, in my opinion, narrow-minded politicians or under the influence of local views. Of all the delegates, it was New York's Alexander Hamilton and Pennsylvania's James Wilson, two pro-business nationalists with close ties to Washington, who most vocally championed the open-ended grant of power to the central government and championed a truly national market economy. Looking at their meetings with Washington, and their letters among each other and to Washington during this convention suggest that in doing so, they knowingly represented Washington's views as much as their own. From start to finish, Washington presided at the convention without formally expressing his stance on the proper extent of the central government's power. He didn't need to. Ever since the 1783 circular letter to the states, which was then the country's best known public document under the other than the Declaration of Independence, and typically read along with the Declaration of Independence at Fourth of July ceremonies around the country, Washington's daily presence in the on the dais spoke louder than the speeches of anyone in the hall. It gave weight to the Virginia plan, which implicitly bore his imprimatur. And when Randolph drafted a broad enumerations of congressional powers that the Virginia delegation backed, it included every single one that Washington had publicly or privately endorsed. No issue mattered more to him than the new government's supreme power and sovereignty. But there were other topics for members to address, some so divisive as to nearly derail the convention, others that every delegate knew would directly impact Washington should he lead the resulting government. They looked to him on these issues too, and he in turn shaped the outcome. I deal with many of these in my book, but let me just look at, at one of them to sort of be an example. Evidence abounds for Washington's influence in shaping various provisions of the government and securing the compromises that kept the convention on track. But his role in crafting the executive office offers as good an example as any of the part he played in Philadelphia. Since everyone presumed that Washington would become the first president, no one could conceive of the post without thinking of him in it. Delegates debated the executive at length on three separate times. It was the issue they struggled with greatly because, remember, they had revolted against a powerful king, and now they were trying to create an executive for the whole country. So they returned to the issue at three times during the convention in June, July, and August. Now, in June, the first of these times, they raised virtually every issue about the presidency that would later occupy them. But on that time, they had trouble even resolving whether one person or a committee of three would hold the office. With Washington in the room, a unitary executive should have seemed obvious to all, especially since every state only had a single governor. Fearful of investing too much power in a single person, however, some delegates, including two from Virginia, favored an executive triumvirate like those of late Republican Rome. Denouncing the single, single executive as, quote, the fetus of monarchy, Randolph averred 
that the people would oppose it. Further, George Mason added that an executive troika could better represent the country's three regions than one ruler, north, middle, and south. These comments on a single executive, coming as they did from old friends, surely vexed Washington. We know they did. We can read his letters. Who prided himself on his Republican virtue, public support, and unbiased nationalism. Any delegate who knew him well must have known that Washington would never consent to serve in an executive triumvirate, nor would he be suited for such a role. While he remained silent in the hall, others rallied to defend the sort of unitary executive that Washington was so clearly qualified to fill. For example, James Wilson of Pennsylvania noted, unity in the executive promotes vigor and dispatch, and by fixing responsibility in one person serves as the best safeguard against tyranny. Well, while these positions came out in the course of formal debate, delegates discussed them on other occasions as well. And let me give you one example. While most of the delegates lived in crowded boarding houses, Washington, while he was in Philadelphia, lodged in Robert Morris's elegant manor, which some call the most beautiful home in America, where he could dine in comfort every day. Yet he often chose to eat with the other delegates. Indeed, on July 2nd, on June 2nd, the very day that the disagreement arose over whether there should be one executive or three, and where the vote, states voted repeatedly and could not decide which way to go, Washington chose to eat with the delegates at Philadelphia's famous City Tavern. While in the session earlier that day, the members raised and could not resolve whether the United States would have one executive officer or three. Now, later in that day, as those delegates dined with the man who would be that king, Washington's presence must have reassured them. As a frequent guest to City Tavern, South Carolina delegate Pierce Butler likely was present. If so, it might explain his later comment that, quote, the powers vested in the executive would not have been so great had not many members cast their eyes toward George Washington as president. At the convention's very next session, the very next time they met after this meeting of Washington with the group, the states voted by a margin of seven to three for a single executive. Then and on every other recorded occasion, Washington voted for a stronger executive. And so it went week after week as Washington successfully guided the convention to its historic conclusion in September, when all the remaining states voted for the Constitution, even though some delegates from some states objected to parts of it. The convention then approved a letter, a transmittal letter, signed only by Washington for sending the finished draft to Congress. The importance of this letter should not be understated because, remember, the public had been excluded from the convention, so they did not know what was being drafted. The first inkling they got was when the Constitution was published, and it was published with this cover letter, signed only by Washington. The letter says, the friends of our country have long seen and desired that the power of making war, peace, and treaties, of levying money and regulating commerce, and the corresponding executive and judiciary authorities should be fully and effectively vested in the general government. These factors justify the consolidation of our union. In that is involved our prosperity, our safety, and perhaps our very national existence. This letter opened the public campaign for ratification and was printed in virtually every American newspaper. The accompanying resolutions asked Congress to forward the Constitution to the states for ratification, with only nine of them required to launch the new union. 
Washington wanted the number to be seven. Washington's signature on the cover letter and resolutions made it look to the American people as if the Constitution came directly from him. One day after the delegates signed the Constitution, Washington left for his beloved Mount Vernon, ostensibly to let the people work their will. Indeed, on that day he vowed, quote, not to say or do anything for or against ratification. Yet only two days later, uh, he sent copies of the Constitution to three former Virginia governors, along with private letters urging them to support ratification. I sincerely believe that it is the best that could be obtained at this time, Washington wrote. If nothing had been agreed to, anarchy would soon have ensued. A steady stream of private appeals to state governors across the Union and to pro leading private citizens literally Dozens upon dozens of letters followed, urging those leaders to support ratification. As much as he wanted to live um, out his days quietly on his plantation and did not want to appear publicly as backing a document that would inevitably raise him to the presidency, Washington had so much time and reputation invested in the Constitution, and he believed so strongly that the country could not survive without it, that its progress consumed him, even as he resumed day-to-day -day management of his plantation. Like most Federalists, he was convinced that the choice lay between the Constitution and chaos. The preservation of Individual liberty and private property required ratification, and ratification required him. Early reports in every state sounded much the same. Federalists would reply on the public's trust in Washington to carry the day. Washington knew the role that his name and reputation were playing in the campaign for ratification. He received and read newspapers from around the country daily and followed the unfolding drama in them and through letters. These reports carried endless references to his central role at the convention. Yet most people likely cared less that he had signed the Constitution than he would lead the new government under it. No doubt Washington saw his coming, and without coveting the presidency, he never denied that he would take it. Pennsylvania's Governor Morris, who later became a senator from New York, warned about the Constitution's progress prospects in a letter to Washington, should the idea prevail that you would not accept the presidency, it will prove fatal. By silence, Washington played his part. Even with him in their camp, however, Federalists faced the daunting task of securing ratification for the revolutionary shift of power from the states to the central government. Now, Federalists had the advantage, it is true, of a document designed to address the grave economic and political problems then facing the country. And they had influential supporters returning from the convention to each state pushing for ratification. But led at first by dissenting delegates and soon joined by New York Governor George Clinton, Virginia Orator Patrick Henry and others, anti-Federalists were organizing to stop ratification. Whether he liked it or not, the clash would draw in Washington. As opposition to the con Constitution emerged, Washington enlisted supporters to defend it. He wrote in dozens of letters to key individuals around the country, much will depend on literary abilities and the recommendations of it by good pens. This was a plea that they write articles, whether anonymously or not, backing ratification. 
An October speech by Pennsylvania delegate James Wilson so pleased Washington that he sent copies to others and urged them to distribute it widely. Then he contacted a few people up here, Hamilton, Madison, and Jay, and urged them to write some letters and essays. And he was so pleased by them when they came back that he began sending them around the Federalist Papers to be republished in other newspapers. As he came to identify more completely with the Constitution, Washington increasingly railed against his opponents. Every art that could inflame the passions and touch the interest of men has been essayed, Washington wrote. The ignorant have been told that should the proposed government obtain, their land would be taken away from them and their property disposed of. The anti-federalist fort, he said, seems to lie in misrepresentation. In contrast to them, Washington believed that liberty, property, and independence could only survive with the Constitution. I never saw him so keen for anything in my life, one visitor wrote about Washington near the end of 1787. Even though by then five states had ratified the document, formidable opposition remained in Massachusetts, Virginia, and New York. Knowing their importance, Washington stepped up his involvement. Of course, behind the scenes, Washington had been deeply involved in ratification efforts since the outset. To win in Massachusetts, Madison now advised Washington that he must send a public appeal to the delegates in Boston. The general reluctantly agreed. Even before his letter arrived, however, confirmation of his position reached Massachusetts from another source. As noted, he often wrote private letters urging ratification. Parts of one had surfaced in a Virginia newspaper on December 27th and was reprinted in nine Massachusetts newspapers during the state's contentious ratification convention, which began on January 9, 1788. Washington wrote in this letter, there is no alternative between the adoption of it, meaning the Constitution, and anarchy. And clear I am, if another federal convention is attempted, that the sentiments of the members will be more discordant and less accommodating than the last. In fine, they will agree on no general plan. Federalists were hungry to hear such words from their icon. By March, some 50 newspapers had reprinted this letter. I am fully persuaded that it is the best that could be obtained at this time, the extract said about the Constitution, and that it is free of many of the imperfections with which it is charged and that it is it, it is it or disunion that is before us to choose from. In one sentence, Washington had encapsulated the Federalist position. Now, the sides were so closely drawn in Massachusetts that Washington's support for the Constitution may have proved decisive. An article in the Massachusetts Gazette suggests as much when it observed at the time the Federalists should hereinafter be called Washingtonians. Even after the state narrowly ratified the Constitution in February uh, and others followed, the Constitution remained one state shy of the nine required for ratification when Virginia, New Hampshire, and New York opened their conventions in June. The plot thickens fast, Washington wrote as Virginia's ratifying convention neared. Yes, he actually said that. The plot thickens fast. To deal with the threat posed by Patrick Henry's oratory, Washington all but ordered James Madison to stand for election to the convention so that he could answer Henry point for point, a task the shy, withdrawn, even nerdy, Madison dreaded 
And when Madison's election looked doubtful without campaigning, Washington ordered him to stump for votes, something he had never done before and he hated doing. Once the delegates convened, the debate went on for weeks with neither side gaining a clear advantage. Between letters and newspaper reports, Washington received a blow-by-blow account of the convention. Though at home, he might as well have been there. Indeed, not only in Richmond, but in all the state conventions, Washington was a brooding presence. His role in drafting the Constitution and the prospects of him becoming the president made all the difference. Alluding to him near the end of Virginia's convention, one anti-federalist leader told the assembly, were it not for one great character in America, so many men would not be for this government. In making their arguments, Virginia anti-federalists must have felt that they were shadow boxing with Washington, whose assumed role as president made what they saw as a fatally flawed system appear attractive to many. On June 27, the stage brought news to Mount Vernon that Virginia had ratified the Constitution two days earlier. It had passed by a narrow two-vote margin. Victors and vanquished alike recognized that it was as much a triumph for Washington as it was for the Constitution. Virginia anti-federalist James Monroe said at the time, be assured Washington's influence carried this government. Well, these momentous events led Washington to reflect on all that Americans had accomplished over this past year. And I would close by just writing what he wrote when he had heard, finally, that Virginia and then New York ratified the document. He wrote, we had the unequaled privilege of choosing our own political institutions and of improving upon the experiences of mankind in the formation of a confederated government where due energy would not be incompatible with the inalienable rights of free men. In a world ruled by hereditary monarchs, traditional dogmas, or military might, nothing like America's Republican government had ever occurred. And so he wrote, We exhibit at present the novel and astonishing spectacle of a whole people deliberating calmly, on what form of government will be the most conducive to their happiness, and deciding with an unexpected degree of unanimity in favor of a system which they conceive calculated to answer that purpose. Where before Washington had despaired of the country's very survival as a free unified republic, now he exuded confidence. He wrote, when the people shall find themselves secure under an energetic government, when foreign nations shall be disposed to give us equal advantages in commerce from dread of retaliation, and when everyone under his own vine and fig tree shall begin to taste the fruits of freedom, then all of those blessings, he wrote, for all those blessings will surely come, will be referred to the fostering influence of the new constitution. Over the course of 1788, Washington had articulated three main goals for the U.S., under the Constitution, respect abroad, prosperity at home, and expansion westward. Toward those ends, he he envisioned a vigorous federal government encouraging trade, manufacturing, and agriculture through effective tariffs, sound money, and secure property rights. He wrote, 
America under an efficient government will be the most favorable country of any in the world for persons of industry and frugality and not less advantageous to the happiness of the lowest class of people because of the great plenty of unoccupied land. This was Washington's vision for America, and as the nation's first president, he went a long way to realizing it. It had required a second revolution, one conceived in the Confederation's as the Confederation's failure became apparent during the mid-1780s, gestated at the Constitutional Convention and given birth through a torturous ratification process. Washington was there throughout, just as he had been during the first American Revolution, making him truly the father of his country. Thank you. Thank you. Any any questions? Or are you going to let me off without them? Okay. Please come to the mics. Thank you. Yes. My question deals with uh, understanding that the power that went to the federal government was actually taken from the states. And New York State was one of those states that gave it up the hardest. Which state had the most buyer remorse after the Constitution was passed? <laughs> You mean then or later? Probably after later. Probably in the short term, Virginia. Yeah. Which and and then its offshoot. Of course, Virginia at that time included Kentucky, and it split, and that's why the Virginia and Kentucky resolutions um, reflected that remorse. Certainly not New York. New York was the most re reluctant because George Clinton, who was like a brother to George Washington, they were incredibly close friends, um, and in fact, the only private home that he went to when he came up to be sworn in as president. And business was, partners was, also. Oh, that he made more money. The only thing that made Washington more money than his investments with George Clinton in upstate New York was the, the distillery. He built the largest whiskey distillery in the New World, and that even made him more money. But those two things. But they were very close, but they differed on this. But George Clinton was able to export the taxes by putting uh, duties on tariffs on goods going in and out of the harbor. He exported his taxes to Connecticut and New, New Jersey. Very good if you could make it work. And it helped... Um, in New York State, and that's why that's part of the reason that that Clinton and the New York delegation, Yates, Lansing, and the group um, were so opposed. And clearly, if clearly, given who was elected to the state ratifying convention, if George Clinton hadn't relented, and Washington knew this, it never would have been ratified. There were not the votes to ratify it. And clearly, Clinton finally said, "We heard from Virginia's passed it. It's going to happen." And he let it happen. He still voted against it, but he freed, his, freed the people committed to vote against it. So, yeah, there was a long exchange. Whenever Hamilton started lashing out at George Washington, George Washington never stopped anybody from attacking Patrick Henry, who he grew to hate, or, Matt, or Mason, who he grew to hate. But every time Hamilton had started attacking George Clinton, Washington sent him a note to tell him to stop. Don't attack George Clinton. He is doing what he believes is best for his state. And, of course, he knew in the end he was going to pull it if he had to. So anyway, he think, I think he did that, thought that. Mm. They remained close friends. You know the two children of George Clinton. George Washington Clinton was his first child, and Martha Washington Clinton was his second child. <laughs> Over there. So George Washington had tremendous uh, personal history with New York during the Revolution. That's, an That's obvious. And yet the Revolution, as you describe so eloquently in your book, takes place in Philadelphia, 
did Washington contemplate New York as the capital? Um, did, did his vision or his thinking factor into that, even indirectly? Washington, Washington was a true, um, he may have become a true nationalist, but he wanted the capital moved to the banks of the Potomac. Um, and he backed, he backed during the first, when this was being debated by the, con mm -hmm. the Confederation Congress, he backed New York rather than Philadelphia as the choice because he felt that New York was, and the real reason, he liked New York and he liked coming up here and he, he looked forward to that. That was certainly part of it. But he also believed that New York was too far north to retain the capital. And if it was in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. it wouldn't stay there. So he backed New York over Madison's objections and several other people who wanted mm -hmm. Philadelphia as the first capital. But he backed New York as the first capital, mm -hmm. partly because he thought they wouldn't keep it. Thank you. When Virginia voted on June 25th, did they know that New Hampshire had already ratified? No, do you know who the first person in the country who knew that, that 10 states had ratified the, the Constitution was George Washington? Because the news coming down from, um, that's just one of those wonderful things of history, the news coming down with the writers coming down from New Hampshire to tell Richmond that it's already a done deal, nine have ratified it. Still, it couldn't have happened without Virginia and New York, they were still needed. But the, the writer coming down met the writer going up from Richmond to, um, to tell the New Hampshire they met at Alexandria, Virginia. And so the, the group in uh, and he, Washington notes it, the first people to celebrate that 10 states had ratified the union was the party that Washington went to in, uh, in, uh, in Alexandria. So they didn't know otherwise, uh, yes. So you described a character who did an amazing job of building a constituency in yeah. a relatively short period of time of winning yeah. over dissenting factions. Can you talk right. a little bit about George Washington as a leader? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I try to deal with that in, in the book. Washington, you know, we tend to have this image of Washington as sort of a wax figure, um, partly because of that terrible picture on the $1 bill. Of course, partly because of Mount Rushmore. Um, that picture was he was very old, and of course he had those terrible um, um, ivory teeth um, that made his mouth bulge. Um, but, you know, we think of him, most books are written about him as president or general, and he had a certain role to play then. Um, and he was, as John Adams bitingly said, did John Adams ever say anything that wasn't biting? And John Adams bitingly said about Washington that he was the greatest political actor I ever saw. Um, but I get to deal with him in a period when he's out of power. And what you see is he's a very approachable person, very approachable. He is a great retail politician as well as a wholesale politician. He could lead the country, but he could also, he loved, was a great conversationalist. He loved to go to parties. He loved to drink tea. I can't imagine how much tea he used to drink because tea was the popular drink then. Um, um, he socialized with, he told great stories like Ronald Reagan was a great storyteller. He'd tell stories, but they were about the revolution even better. And he went, when he went to a party and he loved to go to parties, he'd dance with every lady. He loved to go to plays, and he was a great fan of plays and knew Shakespeare well. Don Quixote was his favorite book. Um, he was, um, and so he could meet with people, and he would always, before, and it wasn't just during this period. It was when he was president and when he was a general. He always met with, it, drew his advisors together. That's why he created a cabinet. Um, that's why he put into the Constitution that all the executive departments 
The president could request their writing about what to say. That's in the Constitution. Why would it be there? I mean, you'd think you could, the president could ask him to write something, but he wanted it in there um, because he was used to listening. He was a good listener. And so he'd invite, typically before battle, everyone into the room, um, all the lieutenants, even the young ones like Alexander Hamilton, Lafayette, Henry Lawrence, and he would hear what they all had to say, and he'd listen to it. And Washington had a great vision vision for the country, and you can see this in the Constitutional Convention, but he was willing to always compromise on the means. He wasn't fixed on the means. He knew that Governor Morris was smarter at some things, like inventing the Electoral College, and Madison was smarter at other things, like thinking about balanced government, and he would be willing to delegate authority, listen, and as long as they convinced him that they advanced his long-term means, he would compromise on the, on the, uh, on the, uh, on the means, as long as he could his ends. And he would listen on the ends too and work with people. And those traits of leadership, that willingness to compromise, because you see so many compromises in the Constitution, at the convention. And what amazed me was whenever you see these compromises come out in the convention, the night before they were at Washington, with meeting with Washington. So I don't know if they were telling him this is what's coming um, or if he was advising them or how they were working together, often with Franklin as well, but that's how he led. He was a political general like Eisenhower, and Eisenhower was a great president. But, you know, imagine Eisenhower getting, you know, Churchill and de Gaulle and Patton and Montgomery, um, these people to work together for the D-Day invasion. And Washington was much that same way as a general. He was a political general as opposed to, a, you know, a general like Sherman or a general like Patton. And those generals don't always make such good presidents. But, you know, with Eisenhower and Washington, that's a type of leadership. Uh, Professor Lawson, I wanted yes. to thank you for your very illuminating talk. And I'm curious, when I went to high school 65 years ago, the portrait of Washington was he was a very genial fellow. He uh, admitted to cutting down the apple tree. He was a <laughs> compromiser. He was a good guy. The American historians of today, and I guess in the last 20 years, show us a very different Washington, very shrewd, very intelligent and very organized and political active man. And I'm wondering, in high school I studied American history. When I went to university, I studied mostly European history. So there was obviously a shift in American historiography. And I'm curious when this shift occurred, or whether was it indeed a shift, and was I just asleep and listening to the old chestnuts? But I'm curious, has there been a shift in American uh, historians' view of Washington in the last 20, 30 years? I do think Washington's, I mean, how can you be ascending when you never go down? Washington is always at the top of American presidency. Um, whether you're Lincoln, you're FDR, they all say he was the greatest president. Um, so he's always had a high reputation. But, but there was a period when, if you were reading Parson Weems or some of these stories about them about chopping down the cherry tree or a picture of him standing up in the boat and going across on the, he never did either. Um, it was a great anecdote, but I don't have time to tell it about going across the boat. Clearly, he wasn't standing up. But there was that sort of, that was that sort of picture. Uh, 
But people have had a greater appreciation for his, have, have an increased appreciation. You see it, at Ron, you had Ron Chernow here and speaking on his Washington book. He, did, Washington didn't write, he didn't write a lot about this period, but he captures the same sort of Washington in the other periods. And there's been a greater study of Washington as a leader. There's been a growth of leadership studies led by James McGregor Burns and this. And they started picking up that Washington had the same political attributes that a Roosevelt um, uh, did. And, or, and we think about, Imagine, th we think about the team of rivals with Lincoln, what he put together in the cabinet. That was nothing like a team of rivals that would include Jefferson and Hamilton and Knox in the same cabinet, because um, that was typical of Washington. Draw these, draw them inside the tent and let them argue and listen to them all and then enforce a consensus out. So we've learned a lot about Washington's leadership skills, and they've replaced a more simplistic view of Washington as that icon sitting up in the in the Constitutional Convention, basically contributing to it mostly by leading his dignity and authority. And as I went through it closely, and before this I'd written a book, um, edited notes of the, the Constitutional Convention, I think the same is true of Benjamin Franklin as well. That Benjamin Franklin is, you know, is, not, is not just the affable storyteller at the Constitutional Convention. He was crafting a lot of these compromises, too. Um, so with both men, um, but most of all with Washington, we're seeing them as a much more complicated figure. But we're also seeing his warts more, too. There have been great books about Washington and slavery. We're seeing his warts as well, but I think it's only when you see the warts and the strengths. We're getting a fuller picture of Washington. That helps us. Then they can be relevant for us today and how they put the pieces together. So I think it's a, better, it's a, it's a picture more suitable for our time, but much more closer to what Washington really was with the greater scholarship into that. So thank you very much.